Hey everybody, this is episode 58 of Artist Soapbox. Hello and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassane. Today I'm talking with Dr. Alan Friedman, the music director at Judea Reform Congregation in Durham, the artistic director of Women's Voices Chorus, and the founding director of Sonum, Singers of New and Ancient Music. From 2004 to 2012, he served as the associate conductor of Duke Chapel Music, directing the Duke Vespers Ensemble and the Duke Divinity School Choir. Dr. Friedman is also an active composer and a music educator of people of various ages throughout the Triangle. It's Alan Friedman's mission to make music more accessible, and he does this in many ways. In this conversation, we focus on his chorus, Sonum. Sonum, or Singers of New and Ancient Music, is a chorus committed to creating high-quality, sacred, and secular music and giving back to the community. Their mission is to make excellent choral music that supports local nonprofits through benefit concerts. In the last seven years, Sonam has given benefit concerts for more than 20 nonprofits, from veterans organizations to organizations that assist with food insecurity, young musicians training, refugee resettlement, and more. You'll hear us talk about this really interesting model for. I'm going to say, putting art to work for our community. It seems that Sona makes music accessible and relevant in an unusual way as a force for good in our local community. We talk about why Sonam works, what kinds of music you might hear at a concert, which, by the way, is based thematically on the nonprofit they feature, and much more. See the show notes for information about their concert coming up January 5th to support the local nonprofit Book Harvest. Thanks so much and enjoy the episode. Hi, Alan. Hey, thanks for having me today. Thank you so much for being here. In our pre-interview phone conversation, you said one of your missions is to make music more accessible. Could you talk about that? Absolutely. I think that all of us neither know someone or have been a person ourselves that has been told, you don't have a good singing voice. You shouldn't sing. Just stand to the side here in the concert and look good. Don't uh, express your voice. And then, you know, so many people who will say, I don't sing. I don't have an ear. I'm tone deaf. Almost no one is tone deaf. And yet we're taught from a very young age in this culture to sort of hide your light under a bushel, as it were, and don't sing out. Don't express yourself through music when we know it's so natural. You look at babies and toddlers, they want to sing all the time. And so pushed away. It's told that it's it's the domain of either professionals or people who want to be professional, as you can see on reality shows. And for me, it should be accessible to everyone. And to be able to sing and by extension make music uh, in a free and inclusive way that both allows people a chance to express themselves, but also allows for uh, improvement over time. I mean, that's the ultimate goal for me. I really think of music as an ex- extremely inclusionary activity and people who are exclusive snobs in any sense of the word just drives me nuts. Mm. You know, it's so interesting as you say that I feel like this, um, telling people not to sing 
is one of perhaps the first instances of shaming around mm. our voice absolutely, and, and speaking out in our own unique way. And I know many people, more than I ever would have guessed, who were told to lip sync mm-hmm. during their chorus concert. And it, when I think about that, it like literally brings tears to my eyes. It's just so painful to be surrounded by people who are singing and not be able to participate. So you have this double whammy of not being able to, sh- to express yourself as an in- individual, but also not being able to participate in that communal activity, which is so powerful and getting synced up with other people. Absolutely. And because the voice is part of who we are, it's, it, there's no way to separate the instrument from the person. So that if you're playing violin, it's easy to say, oh, my violin doesn't sound good today, or I don't have a nice violin. If someone feels like they can't sing, they can't go and get another voice. Mm-hmm. And so it's inherently who they are. So it's even more of a a um, sort of a naked phenomenon, a feeling of not being um, able to close yourself off. When you sing, you have to be open. Otherwise, no sound comes out, mm-hmm. right? And so to be able to say, this is who I am and this is my voice, it's so important to be able to do that. And we do get shut down in yeah. our culture. Yeah, it seems that it's emo- important Emotionally and psychologically, but I think also there's a physical component mm. because of the the vibration that Absolutely. you feel. And as you're saying, when you're seeing, you have to be open physically to be a conduit for the sound. Yeah. And people who don't sing regularly miss out on that. It Absolutely. seems like a shame. It's there. It just has to be drawn out. And part of it is the physical and part of it is just the emotional openness of, of being willing to do it somewhere else than your shower. Mm. <laughs> And showers are good, are yeah, good places to sing, best. but they shouldn't be the only places we sing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so how do you do this? How do you make music more accessible? I make music more accessible in a number of ways. Um, I was very fortunate to um, be brought up by my parents who loved music. And my mom would sing to me all the time, mostly musicals. My dad would sing 50s and 60s music. And I got to say that I definitely got some genetic coding from both sides. But I wouldn't say that they are the most beautiful singers of all time, but their enthusiasm for the music drew me into that. And then I just went on a journey where I sang in a whole bunch of different choirs, some very, very, um, let's say, um, unicultural in northern Minnesota, where mixed marriage is between a Swede and a Lutheran, a Swede and a Finn, I should say, (laughs) uh, to singing in South Africa, where it was a completely mixed choir of white people and black people and Indian people. And this one super white Jewish boy from North Minnesota. And so that combination of seeing people um, express themselves set me on a path to think anyone can do this. And my goal now is to set up a way of me working with three-year-olds all the way up to 90-year-olds singing. And I do that by dropping my foot in a bunch of different musical uh, endeavors. I work at my synagogue, Judea Reform, where i able to teach really young ones and more experienced people. I have a chamber choir named Sonum that is a more of a high level group that um, works really hard on making beautiful music together, but also reaches out to the community. I've had the chance to work with the Kids Notes program, an amazing program uh, in East Durham and Southeast Raleigh and now in Chapel Hill. And I also have a wonderful women's choir of women who are also from age in their, let's say, in their 20s to more experienced And they come from all walks of life and all experience levels. And so for me to share that gift of music and to bring, regardless where people start, up another level, and both in terms of their skill level, but also in terms of their joy and their connection to music, that's the ultimate goal for me. 
Was there a moment when you thought to yourself, this is what I want to do with my life? Absolutely. So when I was, um, I was fortunate enough to go to Duke and between my sophomore and junior year, I had to decide between a music major and a history major and was talking to my parents and they had always assumed I'd be a professor or a lawyer or who knows, a mediator, although I hate conflict. So that sort of went out the door. Um, and I came home and I said, Mom and Dad, I think I want to be a musician. And they said, we're terrified and we support you, which was great because it outlined for me right at the beginning that this was going to be hard and it was not easy to make a, a career in music, certainly. And, and maybe a more um, stable or predictable path would have been another way to go. But for me, I wanted to make music. I wanted to share that joy. And, and music involves so many of the things that I'm very interested in, history and psychology and acoustics and group dynamics and um, just everything that languages, everything that uh, comes together in making a whole and, and tells you more about a culture. It's fascinating to me. Mm. So I stepped on that um, plane when I was 21. I went to South Africa to study abroad, and that short, sort of opened me up into this world of creating music. Mm. Wonderful. So I, I want to focus a lot on Sonam mm-hmm. in this conversation, but before we go there, I want to ask one more question mm-hmm. uh, about advice you'd have for people who feel like they want to sing, mm-hmm. but also feel that resistance um, either from themselves or from you know people right. in their lives who yeah. shut them down. I'd say the first thing to think about is to try to get outside of yourself, however that means to you. Does that mean... Being in a group of people at a karaoke bar, does that mean having a glass of wine ahead of time so you're not thinking about yourself? Does that mean being out in nature where you're focused on the other? If you can focus on an outer community or the music itself, like let's say you're listening to Ella Fitzgerald sing. So right away, you know, you're not going to sound as good as Ella Fitzgerald. That's great. And yet, if you can find the passion in her voice and find the connection and then sing along with her in the car, she's taking you on that journey. Mm. And in a way, you can just sort of let go of yourself. I think the hardest thing for all of us is to um, stop worrying about how we sound and think um, about the wider world. And it's so ironic in a way, because when you sing, no one else hears you sing the way you sing, because of the way our physiology, our, our bodies are set up. You probably had this experience where you've heard yourself on an answering machine or a voicemail, I'm dating myself clearly, mm. uh, or hear yourself um, singing and, and a recording of yourself and you say, I don't sound like that. I sound like this, right? And so the outer world, no matter what you do, the outer world hears a different you than what you have. Mm. So it's your own individual voice, but at the same time, you have to share it with the outside world and know that it's, it's this gift and you'll never know what they hear, just like they'll never know what you hear. Mm. Yes, I love that. And as you can imagine, that has been my experience on the mm. podcast as I've listened to my voice over and over again. Absolutely. I don't shock. sound like that. <laughs> Do I sound like that? Oh, my gosh. So let's talk about Sonam. Mm-hmm. Why did you found this group? I've always been raised to give back to the community. And I found that my biggest um, successes in life, I think, are the times when I've reached out, forged community and given more of myself and perhaps created a greater whole than the sum of its parts by giving back to others. I wanted a group that would make um, high level music, a group that would sing music that I love, especially, which is 
I love all sorts of music, but in the choir world, I especially love Renaissance music, music up to about 1650, written mostly in Western Europe, and then music from about 1950 onwards. So modern music, sonoms and acronyms, singers of new and ancient music. So that's the ancient music, to the new music. And to combine that love of that choral music with my love for giving back to the community, I thought, well, I'll just make up this this wonderful group of people and see if people would be willing to give their time and talents. It's an all volunteer organization. We get together once a week on Tuesday nights. We get together, we sing three or four concerts and all the money goes to local nonprofits. Each year we select three or four, um, oftentimes suggested by singers in the group or connections we have somehow. And we go and we sing these concerts that are often based on some aspect of the nonprofit. And then all the money goes to the nonprofit and everyone goes happy full of spirit and full of uh, good music and hopefully some cash for the nonprofit. Why do you think people participate in this as a volunteer? I think that there's a couple of reasons. I think that one, people really are looking for a way to give back to their community that A, doesn't necessarily mean money because people are who want to give back are on all levels of the financial spectrum, right? There's people like Bill Gates who have billions of dollars to give away, um, or Paul Allen. And then there's people um, who have almost nothing and still want to give back. And so to be able to give back through your talents is a great gift, I think, when you don't have that extra money to give week after week or month after month in the um, sustaining donor program to, mm-hmm. to whatever. And at the same time, people want, uh, the people who sing in this chorus want a an artistic experience that's authentic, whatever that means to them, um, that is a team building. It's a very much a democratic chorus. We singers suggest something, we try it, then we all decide do we like that or not, which is great. And they want a short time commitment. We only meet two hours a week, only during the academic year, and that's it. Because most of these people are super busy, like everyone else mm-hmm. these days. And so to be able to say this is how I give. It's like giving blood. I give blood once a month or once every two months. I give by going on Tuesday nights and singing for two hours. Mm. Yeah. So they don't pay to, they don't get paid to do it. Do they pay to participate? The only uh, fees that they have are to buy their music, their sheet music, and then they keep it themselves. But everyone otherwise is a volunteer. And so I don't get paid or, or incredible accompanist Jane Lynch doesn't get paid. Um, we get our rehearsal space donated by Judea Reform. So there's no overhead for us. Um, we have a few donors that are, are very generous and help us out with things like concert programs and promotion and, and things to get more people involved in coming to the concert. But yeah, it's great. It's like 15 bucks a year for the singers. Yeah. So <laughs> when you were describing the music that you focus on, mm-hmm. you said the 1600s, the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like a 300 year. Yes, absolutely. Jump. What is it about either the stuff in the middle that you don't like right. or the, the music on either side that yeah. you do like? There's a couple of there's a couple of just um, technical things that make it more difficult about the music in the middle. Uh, oftentimes, choral music from about 1650-ish to 1950-ish is accompanied in some way. Mm-hmm. So we have a wonderful accompanist, a pianist who can play, uh, she plays organ too. So if we were to do music with that accompaniment, that's fine. But let's say we want to do a big piece by Mozart. Almost all of that music is written for an orchestra. 
So if you have no budget, you're either asking orchestra members of a high level to donate their time, which sometimes they will do. Every once in a while, we'll put together an orchestra to play. But most of the time, you don't want to go to musicians and say, hey, will you donate your time for this and donate your time for that? Because for whatever reason, musicians are often asked to donate their time in a way that suggests you don't value their professional training more than, say, a plumber or a carpenter (laughs) or something like that. And Mm -hmm. so that's true of all artists, I think. And so because of that, we tend to focus on music that's a cappella without accompaniment. And in my mind, some of the greatest music that's a cappella was these outer time periods up to 1650. And then the last 60 or 70 years or so. And in addition, the way that the music was sung up to 1650 involves more of a straight tone as opposed to vibrato. I'll demonstrate. So a straight tone is like this. Whereas vibrato is like this. So there's more waviness Mm -hmm. in the vibrato as opposed to the straight tone. And music from the early time, from Renaissance and now, uh, is often written for more voices singing at the same time in a straighter tone. The music just sounds better that way. And so to focus on these two time periods allows us to focus on music that was sung in a similar manner, even though it's spread out 300 years. Whereas the music in the middle was designed more for uh, more vibrato-laden tones, which uh, calls for a completely different technique. And it's hard to switch back and forth between those two ideas. So what might a concert (laughs) program look like? Yeah. So let's say we're going to sing a song about, or sorry, a concert about, let's say, food insecurity. We've done a couple of concerts for um, Meals on Wheels. We'll have done a concert on Porch. And so we would sing music about food or about the harvest or about gifts or something like that. And we would have about half the music be up to 1650 or so, much in Latin or French or Spanish or English. And then the music from about 1950 or so would, again, be usually in English. Uh, Oftentimes we have a mix of secular and sacred music, but all the music is intended to be... um, welcoming and most of it's really beautiful to listen to there's certainly some challenging pieces we once did a concert for uh veterans that was all about war and peace and half the concert was really warm and begging for peace and half the concert was pretty um harsh because you were talking about the the perils of war we try to very much program based on the nonprofit, both as a way of um maybe showing new connections between music and, and the nonprofit itself. And also because we just think it's interesting to, to focus on specific themes. So take me through the planning process mm-hmm. for your year, because if you're, if you're doing concerts that are thematic, mm-hmm. then you really need quite a bit of planning time, I imagine. Right. So how, how does it all come together? Yeah. So in spring of a particular year, say March or April or May, the choir gets together at some point, uh, usually over beers, And we say, what do we want to focus on in the next year? What's important to us? So that could be um, refugee resettlement, or it could be food insecurity, or it could be veterans, or it could be um, any number of other ideas supporting young musicians. And then we identify nonprofits in our community. They're almost always local nonprofits. And we identify nonprofits that we want, wish to support. And then once we've identified those, we have a wonderful woman in our course. We have lots of wonderful people on our course. Wonderful woman named Hope who reaches out to the nonprofits and said, says, we'd love to support you. Here's what's involved for you. Here's what's involved for us. 
please publicize this. Please come and talk a little bit about your uh, nonprofit. Every concert starts with about a five to 10 minute um, presentation from the nonprofit talking about the work they do so that our audience slowly gets introduced to different nonprofits throughout the, the community. And once we've identified those nonprofits, we identify the spaces where we are to sing. We've had great, great support from local houses of worship, um, Judea Reform Congregation, First Presbyterian Durham Chapel in the Pines in Chapel Hill. Um, all of these communities who wish to host us and support this work, and they all donate their space and time uh, as well. And then we start rehearsing. I'll pick out a whole bunch of music that works with the theme, and we'll have three or four rehearsal periods through the year. So the first two months of from September to October, we'll focus on one set of music, then November, December, December, another set, and so on hmm. through the year. How has this chorus evolved over time? Because you're in your seventh year? Yeah. yeah. So at, at first, it was a lot of people who I had met through my time at Duke Chapel. I was really lucky to work there um, at Duke for eight years in the chapel and had the chance to um, forge a lot of really solid connections. And as you do when you're an artist, you make these connections that last and last and, and grow and grow. But over time, we found that we just slowly had other people in a wider orbit who have gotten to know Sonam either through the concerts or friend of a friend kind of thing. And so surprisingly, in seven years, it doesn't seem like it, but the membership has turned over quite a bit. Um, this is a very mobile community, I would say, the, the triangle. Mm, yes. You have people who move in all the time and people who move out all the time. And so um, at the same time, uh, despite the sort of churn of the membership, there's remained an, an incredible respect for everybody in the group and um, a very strong feeling of camaraderie and and democracy. It's probably the most democratic chorus I've ever been associated with, where people try new ideas and are really unafraid to suggest things and to work in a way that is um, more conducive to being open and, and free with your singing as opposed to being fearful. I was taught when I was young that there was the two greatest motivators in the world were fear and money. And I decided early on that uh, that was not going to be something I wanted to do as a, as a conductor. And so we motivate each other through respect and love and, and excitement for the music. And so that has been a constant. The other things that have changed over time is I'm more willing to let other people do things. Mm -hmm. As you know, uh, as a arts entrepreneur yourself, at first you feel like you need to be in control of everything. And then you realize over time, maybe you have all the gifts, but I've realized, I over, <laughs> I realized over time that my strengths lie in some fields and my weaknesses in others or areas for improvement in others. And I've slowly begun to hand off some of those things. And just like asking someone to sing for you for free, asking folks to give their time and gifts for free, it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's hard to, to reach out to people, even when you have what I think is the best of intentions. It's still hard to, to ask. It is hard to ask because you don't want to take advantage of other people's generosity, yeah. even if you know that they might be more skilled in a certain <laughs> area. Um, you don't want to mm, tax that relationship yeah. sometimes. Um, I sometimes even have a hard time when people offer to help mm -hmm. me. It's like, well, do you really mean that? Or mm -hmm. you, I don't know why I get really sus not suspicious. That's not quite the right word, but I, I still don't want to impose. Uh, but I am learning gradually that just like me, people like to 
volunteer. They yes. like to do the things that they are good at. Absolutely. It actually makes them feel good. And what I might consider an onerous task, mm-hmm. somebody else might really enjoy. Yeah. And so who am I to hold them back from that enjoyment? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> So over the last seven years, I'm Mm -hmm. sure you've had many, many meaningful experiences Mm -hmm. in concerts, but do you have an example of a particular interaction with a nonprofit or a concert that you still think about? Yeah. uh, The one that just popped into my mind, well, there's a couple. Uh, One was this concert I, I mentioned earlier about the veterans concert. It's called Vets to Vets United. And the nonprofit was a wonderful nonprofit that took veterans and matched them with dogs who had been in shelters Mm -hmm. and they would adopt the dogs out, train them as service dogs for the veterans. And so the veterans would get an animal that would take care of them. And the animal, of course, as service dogs do, would take care of the veterans. There's this wonderful concert. And uh, the the most memorable part about the concert was they brought a bunch of service animals to the concert, unbeknownst to us. (laughs) And so uh, they were super well-behaved during the whole concert. But then every time people would clap at the end of a piece, the dogs would all get up and shake their collars too, because they needed to stretch out a little bit. And then they would settle back down. So it was extra applause with the dogs shaking their collars. Another really memorable concert was one we did, which was a fundraiser for Kids Notes. It was a piece that I had actually composed, uh, a evening Shabbat service. And we did this at Judea Reform. And we combined a choir of kids notes, folks. These are kids who are from mostly from East Durham, who are underserved kids who uh, get this amazing program where five times a week, they get free music lessons that evolve. Usually they start out with violin, but they also have choir and music theory and all sorts of other ways of, of, of supporting them. They came together, this choir of kids from East Durham with uh, our synagogue junior choir, we call Makela, which means collection of birds. And they came together to sing. And then we had Sonam sing and volunteer orchestra. And we all came together and we're singing these songs about peace in Hebrew. And you're looking around and thinking, what an amazing experience for everyone to come together, make this music. Of course, I was incredibly lucky to have these people singing and playing my music. And then at the end of the night, we'd raised all this money for Kids Notes and given it back to the community, made people aware of what the nonprofit was about. The kids from East Durham had integrated with kids from West Durham, who, even though they live three miles apart, never come across each other on a daily basis. And they're all mixed up. It was like this this ideal of mine of having all of this music come together for a better community. Levels, we had eight-year-olds in the choir. We had a 97-year-old bongo player. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. And, and having this, this synthesis of music, it was exactly what I had dreamed for this, this community. Mm-hmm. And Sonam was really the backbone, singing almost all of the choral music in it. And, and because they were um, so musically dependable, I was able to add in on all of these other parts in a way that, that really made a, a beautiful whole. Do you anticipate that Sonam will continue to involve in a certain way? Or do you feel you and the members Mm -hmm. feel comfortable with where things are right now? I think that it will stay the same in some ways. Um, The membership really wants to keep it at 20 or fewer singers. They feel once you get past a certain number of singers, it becomes less um, intimate in a way. And uh, I'm sure we'll continue to make the same kind of music we've been making because people sign up for a specific choral experience. They don't want it to change too much, even though much of us love music of, say, Mozart or Brahms or whatever, we're not going to take that left or right musical turn 
as it were. But I also think that the group really hungers to um, have more of a chance to sing this music, you know, like everything you practice and practice and practice and then you perform and then it's over and, mm-hmm. and you've spent all these hours preparing this music and then you sing it once and it's over. We've talked about ways of getting into um, singing for retirement communities or singing for schools or other programs where we could share our music on a more informal level. So that's a possibility if I can get the organizational energy behind Mm -hmm. that. Uh, Also, I think they would like to see it just a little bit more um, professionalized in the sense of um, having people who spend time on our social media, having time spend time on publicity, people who are not me, who can get our word out in a more effective and efficient way, probably. So I think that would be the the growth opportunity is for us to be better about spreading the word about who we are. And I thank you for this opportunity today. I'm happy to to talk (laughs) about it. I'm so inspired by this. Do you find that your audience changes drastically depending on the nonprofit that you are featuring, or do you have a pretty solid core? It's about two thirds solid core and a third people brought in by the nonprofits. And the dream is that we keep building our audience because someone who is associated with say seeds of Durham comes to our seeds of Durham concert and says, that was amazing. I'm going to go to the next one. And over time you build up a sort of a critical mass. This being our seventh year, we probably supported more than 20 nonprofits in, in various concerts over over the years. And the idea is to build up a mass, especially for this music that is in a lot of ways is esoteric, right? I mean, you're not going to hear 16th century Roman Catholic music very often, unless you're, well, these days you can pull up anything, but it's it's not in our, our sort of our daily consciousness. And it's not something that people would normally seek out. So hopefully we draw them in by the, the nonprofit route and then build audience over time, mm-hmm. showing them that this music is both accessible and um, is relevant in a way. So it sounds like audience building is one of the dreams you have for the organization and getting the word out, mm-hmm. doing some more publicity. But are there other dreams you have in your um, in your mind about where this might go? Yeah, I can I can see I can see us touring someday and, and reaching out to other communities in various ways. Um, both nationally and internationally, I think that we all have a vision of the sort of when such a disjunctive time in American politics. And, and one of the reasons I love music is that because it brings people together in this this almost um, separate or sacred time together. And so I can imagine us going abroad and saying, you know, here's a group of Americans and, you know, we're not crazy one way or the other. We're sharing our, you know, our beliefs uh, and it's about humanity and goodness and, and togetherness. I can imagine just having a chance to be more settled. So often when you start something up every year, you finish and you think, oh, is this going to go on next year? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's going to go on next year. So to be able to say, this is where we want to be in five or 10 years. I mean, that's, that's a dream too. The feeling of, of being settled and confident in any future, mm-hmm. much less, uh, you know, that gives you a chance to plan for the, the long range if you're not worried about keeping the lights on. Right, as it were. right. It is interesting to think about getting to that space where you can imagine what five years from now might look like. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> rare <laughs> to yeah. experience that as an artist uh, in 
in this community, mm-hmm. maybe in, in any yeah. community. I just keep coming back to this question mm-hmm. about wow, why did you think this would work? Because this it's it's a leap, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. To Absolutely. think I'm going to I'm going to form a volunteer chorus focusing on a specific type of music with the goal of supporting nonprofits in our community. How did you think that would work? I thought it would work only well a couple of reasons. The relationships I had built both with my singers and with various nonprofits uh, around the community told me that those relationships would allow me to make the ask of people and they would likely say yes. And um, as a, a sort of addendum to that, it's at all a positive, right? It's really easy when you go to someone and say, I need money for, you know, for me to go to, you know, Six Flags or something. It's easy for people to say no to that because they think it's just for your own benefit. But if you're coming to someone with an ask, where it's clearly for someone else. And we can say this is an all-volunteer organization. We're trying to spread the love, spread the knowledge. It's very hard to say no to that uh, in a way. Or even if people do say no the first time or for that time, they might say yes or say, here's someone who might be able to help you out. So it was sort of the positive peer pressure, I would say, of, of knowing that I was coming and saying, we're supporting this amazing program. Won't you support it? too. And there's nothing in it for us except making great music and feeling in community. Mm -hmm. So that was the leap of faith. Plus, I just, I wanted to make really good music and I wanted to have a chance to do it in this intimate, smaller group setting, which is really nice. Um, I have a wonderful women's choir of 70 members and we have a a wonderful and different community with them than we do with a 20-voice it's a very um, wonderful feeling because you get a sense for each person and what they want and what their dreams are and how they contribute, what they bring vocally and socially and spiritually to the group. So I know you have a concert in November mm-hmm. and this podcast episode will air after that. Right. But will you tell us what's coming up so that we can Absolutely. come to hear you? Yeah, we have three concerts coming up the rest of the season. Um, our concert in March is for the Ronald McDonald House of Chapel Hill. Uh, that will be at uh, the Lutheran Church in Chapel Hill in March. And then our spring concert is for a wonderful program called LEAP, which um, teaches young Latino boys and Latino girls how to read both in English and Spanish. And that'll be on Cinco de Mayo. We'll sing music of Spanish um, composers, mm-hmm. uh, First Presbyterian. But our concert in January is on the 5th of January, also at First Presbyterian Durham. That'll be a fundraiser for Book Harvest, this great program in Durham that collects um, books from all over the place of all styles and distributes them to community members who want to learn how to read or want to read better or just need books. And um, the program is going to be called uh, Music of Lullabies and Dreams. We're going to focus a little bit on the younger readers in the group, but it's going to be this wonderful collection of music, some from America, some from mostly Eastern Europe, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Uh, for whatever reason, they write music that really suits our voices. And the music itself is going to be really um, comforting and smooth and exciting and very much uh, an expression of, um, you know, this this time in the middle of the winter when everything's cold and dark and you have this feeling of where is the light and you sort of find it in that cozy space within yourself. 
or if you're lucky enough to have a fireplace next, <laughs> next to the fire. Um, it's a, I'm really excited about the concert. It's on Saturday, January 5th at 7.30 p.m. at First Presbyterian Church in Durham. Wonderful. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about before we wrap up? Uh, it's just been really interesting for me to, for Sonam, when I put the adjective together, I sounded, thought it sounded vaguely Latin. And then I came to realize that uh, if you translate it, it means um, in Latin, it means we sound together or they sound together, which was really cool. It's also the first name of a very famous um, Bollywood star. Hmm. So quite often on our Facebook group, I'll get messages from uh, folks uh, from South Asia who want to know more about Sonam Chorus, but I think they're looking for the Indian Bollywood film star, <laughs> not for our group. <laughs> Outside of Sonam, mm-hmm. what's coming up for you? Yeah, I well, I have a two and a half year old named Daniel Zev who keeps my life unexpected and beautiful in many ways. <laughs> and going 90 miles an hour. Exactly, I yeah. exactly. But I, I'm so lucky to have all of these different um, musical outlets. I have this great uh, thing going called Pop-Up Course Broadway, where we get meet once a month and we sing Broadway show tunes in Chapel Hill. And you just show up and sing, which again is this part of this whole gestalt I have going of anyone can do this. Don't worry about it. Just be and make music and whatever level you're on, I'll meet you and whether that's, you know, very much, you know, just have a beer and sing from Guys and Dolls or all the way up to random 16th century music from Burgundy. Mm. You know, I love it all. And and one of the things I feel really lucky to do is to be able to work with musicians of, of all levels. And singers are musicians. For all of you people out there, don't say the singers and the musicians. <laughs> singers are musicians. <laughs> Do people make that distinction? Oh, yeah, all the time. They'll be like, the singers will be there at 6.30 and the musicians will join us at 7 o'clock. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> because singing's hard. There's no question. Oh, it's, it's sure hard. So hard. What, what should people say instead? Instrumentalists? Yeah, there singers? you go. The singers and the instrumentalists. Okay. Yeah, you got it. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks for what you do for our artistic community. It's hard to be a musician, an artist of any kind, and and to know how to spread your wings and spread the message. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't wait to see what's coming up for you all. And we'll put that information in the show notes so people can show up for your concerts. Thanks. Thanks, Alan. Soapboxers, the biggest and best thing you can do right now to support this podcast is to share this episode with a friend. Build our listenership. Spread the word about the value of hearing artists talk about their work in this community. Let your friends know that you listen and encourage them to listen too. Artist Soapbox theme music by Bart Matthews. This episode of Artist Soapbox was recorded at my house in Durham, North Carolina. See links in the show notes and on our website, artistsoapbox.org, for more information. Thanks so much, and we're out.